Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiasny and I've been speaking to Dr Rahul Jandial about his new book Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, a guide for all of us to how to look after our brains. My name is Rahul Jandial. I'm the father of three sons. I've got a new puppy, married, and for the last 10 to 15 years I've been a brain surgeon as well as a brain scientist. I have an MD and a PhD, so my career at City of Hope Cancer Center in Los Angeles is a few days of seeing patients and operating, as well as a few days of having a laboratory, running a laboratory where we think about the brain at its most uh, molecular and cellular level. So you've obviously got a huge range of experience, as you say, in both surgical side and the research side. What made you want to communicate what you've learned as a book for a more general reader? What was behind that? Thank you for asking me that. First, I wanted to wait until I had enough experience. I had endured my own tragedies and had some triumphs. Seen a lot of people, I mean patients, I've opened 5,000 skulls approximately. But what comes with that is the 20,000, 25,000 people I've met also. Uh, handshakes, five, ten minutes talking about them to their loved ones if they don't have their own mental capacities, uh, talking to them about what's going on in their brain. And really, I think people see medics or doctors or surgeons as um, saints or healers or people who have always had a calling. For me, it was a way to understand myself. And to my patients, I always let them know, we are allies. I am here to help you if you choose. But I'm also benefiting from being allowed to help you. I'm also benefiting from the range of people I've met, including people who are healthy, as well as people who are not healthy. And after surgery, either they do well or they don't do well. And the ones that do well, they come back a few months later with remarkable recoveries. I don't mean superhumans, but people... I expected their arms to not work after where the cancer was located. But they come back and there is some movement and they're starting to function and they can, they can live their lives. So if the injured brain can heal, why can't all of our healthy brains be better, be a better version of ourselves, both how we care for ourselves and how we think and feel about ourselves. So the goal of this book was to dispel myths, there were quite a bit uh, perpetuated, many of them from Los Angeles where I live, which is my home, dispel myths, reveal things that we've known for half century that people find amazing, but we, meaning surgeons, doctors, scientists, have failed to explain the beauty and complexity of the human brain and what it produces, which is the mind. And this was an opportunity to do that, to talk about sleep, to talk about creativity, to talk about mental health, to talk about kids, to talk about Alzheimer's from my perspective, which always starts with a riveting four or five page story. That way you know that I am truly in the space and it's not just a hypothetical environment. So you obviously see brains in often extreme states of damage, extreme states of disrepair, whereas you say you know, your patients have, have been suffering in one way or another. How much have you learned that the brain is adaptable, not only in these extreme cases. I mean, you talk about a case where uh, there's a young boy who just almost through breathing is able to help his parts of his brain regrow. What can we learn from that? What I would say is in order to learn, we must first have a primer, a basic understanding of this infinitely complex organ but it still has some fundamental laws of nature that it follows. We are atomic dust. Think about the concept that lithium is a mood stabilizer. It's an ion. 
and it can change the way we think and feel. So I always let my patients know, as well as my family and friends when they ask me, make sure when people say, this is good for your brain or this is bad for your brain, to have them explain it to one degree further. Is it good for my brain at the anatomical level, the flesh that we can see? Is it better for my brain at the cellular level, like the grain of sand that makes the sand sculpture or the Lego blocks that make the, uh, the Lego block structure? Neurons make our brains. And then those neurons, those 90 billion neurons, I conceive of them in my mind. I think about them like microscopic jellyfish. They float, they throb, they spark electricity, and they have thousands, tens of thousands of tentacles that reach out. But when those tentacles reach the other thousands and thousands and trillions of tentacles, they don't actually touch. 90 billion neurons with each over 10,000 tentacles, yet they never touch. There's a, almost like a two lovers and a kiss that never get there, but there's a small gap. And in that gap, the electricity jumps around from one side to the other by spraying chemicals, serotonin, dopamine. And so that allows us to understand. So when my patients are on uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the conversation must go to that chemical level. So you take your imagination and go zoom into that level and say, these antidepressants, what they do is they don't go in there and do something to you. They don't deliver a new agent. They manipulate the pharmacy in our mind. So when serotonin is released between that cleft, they just slow up the vacuuming of that. So the, the feeling is there's more serotonin. They don't actually deliver serotonin. And that's an understanding of how antidepressants work. In an extreme case, where somebody might need uh, shock therapy for depression. I mean, how, how does that treat depression? Well, those tentacles of those 90 billion neurons, they spark electricity. So electricity can treat electricity. We are electrochemical at that most microscopic level. Things that can be detected with stickers on a forehead. The electricity on the surface of the heart detected by an EKG. These electrical waves, these chemical flows within us are us because people who have depression people who have were exhilarated it's at that electrochemical level their brains don't look different when i open them up the flesh looks the same and that's important for people to understand that it is in that complexity that we must think of ourselves both that 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 complexity can go the wrong way but it is possible through treatments through thinking through talking through effort to redirect these electrical storms not wiring, but aurora borealis, a swarm of birds that ricochets. Like that's the kind of flow oscillations that happen. This whole thing about like uh, the creativity lives in the brain, and this one not—it's not. That's not how it works. There are wires like a computer, and that's not how it works. There are energy states, electrical and chemical energy states within our skull make us us. And and with that, I think people should feel both thrilled and more in control of what tomorrow holds. I mean, you mentioned the more sophisticated treatments, things like antidepressants and ECT, which you suggest is, you know, has had a bad reputation in the past and has actually improved now. But some of the things that you talk about are actually simple. They don't require any sort of medical intervention, any drugs right. or anything. I mean, tell me a bit about what you've discovered about the importance of mindful breathing. Again, to me, if I have the audacity to speak about the human brain, what I first want to start with is 
there's no way I can understand your interior lives, your thoughts, your emotions, what you've been through. I am different from my former self. I am different from my teenage self. How can I say men, women, uh, tall, short, your brain, the brain? After you, we just discussed the complexity, it is incredibly dynamic and individual from day to day even. Yet there are some rules that govern it. And that's, we, we need to see both the infinite possibilities, yet some of the rules it follows so we can make the maneuvers or have a toolkit to help ourselves, okay? So it's not just incredibly floaty idea. Now at the anatomical level, flesh things that I can see with my eyes, the brain uh, has 12 paired nerves that it sends out to the skull. In addition, it sends a spinal cord down your spine to your arms and legs. Of those 12 nerves called cranial nerves, and they pop out from underneath if the brain is like a mushroom with the cap. They, they come to our eyeballs to move them left and right. Sight go is one of them going inward. We can taste through one of them. We can move our tongue and mouth. Those are cranial nerves. But the tenth one descends. It's extremely long. It's a wandering nerve down the side of our throat next to the carotid and jugular arteries. I've seen it. I've operated on it. And then it turns into a fine mesh around our heart and lungs and guts. Those nerves are the ones that keep your heart beating. So when you see people shocking the chest, they're not shocking the heart. They're shocking the nerves on the surface of the heart to say, hey, tell the heart to squeeze. That wandering nerve that goes to your body is your mind-body connection. It keeps your heart beating when you're asleep or even knocked out. But then we see that it's not entirely automatic, even though it's called autonomic nervous system. The automatic nervous system, some people, Buddhist monks, or just monks, or deep sea divers, you, they can actually think down their heart rate. That shouldn't be in our control, but it's possible. So it sets a precedent for the possibilities within us. Then the essential question comes, does that nerve work in reverse? When we feel butterflies in our stomach. It's the anxiety in our mind that is referred to our guts. But can what we do with our lungs actually send signals to our brain? Okay, so don't believe everybody when they say do this, do that. I want to explain it. Some kids have aberrant brain electricity, right? So now we're talking about electrical storms. And one of the treatments is when I've taken, I make a small cut right there on the side of the neck. We take a little coil like from a big pen. It's a little metal coil with a wire and we put a pacemaker, but it doesn't go to the heart it sends electrical pulses to this nerve. And what we find is, we don't know how, but their, their epilepsy can be treated, and they feel calm, and their anxiety can be treated. So that nerve works in reverse. It is your built-in valium. It is the anxiolytic, the breaker of anxiety. And then what we find is with deep breathing, three seconds in, hold for a few seconds, a few seconds out, just five, 10 minutes a day, just before I go into a surgery, before I step through the door to, to, to you know, if, if you're having conflict with your lover or your friend, it, it has a calming effect. It is our built-in mechanism. And then you say, well, well you still haven't proven it. How, how do you know that deep breathing can calm the mind? So I would offer you a, a, a real thing at centers across the world when you do have electrical abnormalities of the brain called epilepsy. Sometimes we can't find where the epicenter is. So we actually make an incision, lift off the skull. It's like ice fishing. Without getting into the brain, on the surface of the brain, we put like, a, like the size of a deck of a card, a playing card, and, and it's got like 15 wires, 50 wires coming out of that. 
and then we put the skull back on and we put the stitch up the scalp and they wear like a little headdressing and then they have to live in the hospital for weeks waiting for that seizure to strike so we can find under which corner of that grid it arose well guess what they are incredibly bored for those three weeks so a lot of people have come in and talked to them because now you've got real-time broad electrical measurements from the surface of the brain I don't mean just a little sticker on your forehead and then neuroscientists came in and it's published it's in the book everything I'm talking about is published in rigorous journals not just in one-offs and they did this deep breathing and then they saw the electrical waves transform from frenetic energetic waves to more calm and focused brain waves we have surgical proof that deep breathing can calm the electricity of the mind and that is available to everyone for free nothing in the book is trying to sell you something that is the most important thing meditative breathing I don't know what mindfulness is because interior lives are private but this breathing is hijacking in reverse this vagus nerve without having to do a little surgery and it can calm the electricity in your mind. So there is the story and the explanation and the anatomy of why deep breathing, meditative breathing can help you. One of the other things I find really interesting and surprising uh, in the book is that you talk about the importance of creativity and sleep. Many people would be quite skeptical about that. What have you found out about that? This is a bit of a long answer, but to talk on a topic such as this, creativity, almost our, the most magical thing we can do, it takes some context. So I believe we all have hidden creative talents or abilities. N not compared to the other person, but compared to yourself. Let me give you some examples. And I'll go rapid fire on this. Some people with dementia and Alzheimer's have dramatic improvements in their ability to paint because the frontal lobes are injured and there's something deeper in the visceral mind that is released. Uh, some people feel more creative on alcohol or psychedelics. Again, you know, inhib getting, getting, out of, getting the frontal lobes out of the way, getting the executive brain that tells you do this, get on the tube, send emails, tell your shoelaces, getting all of that out of the way, which we need. Otherwise, we'd just be wandering aimlessly. But can we get it out of the way as a habit to find hidden abilities or ideas that might be useful? Children have less developed frontal lobes. They can be very creative. And then we are all wildly creative in our dreams. And Salvador Dali wrote a book on this uh, concept where he used the transition to sleep and coming out of sleep as a portal to his uh, creative mind. Uh, Thomas Edison also did this. It was the basis of uh, why they were had the falling chair in that movie with uh, DiCaprio called Inception. And he would uh, rock on a chair precariously balanced, and when, uh, when he'd fall asleep, he'd be startled. And he had a notepad there. I mean, these are, these are ancient. These are great. And now we understand a bit of the biology. Hypnagogic and hypnopompic is, just, is the 15-ish minutes, whatever, time from, from awake to sleep and sleep to awake. You have to clear your mind. You have to turn off the lights, make sure the doors are locked, kids are fine. Indulge yourself in that maybe once or twice a week. And in that transition, whatever the problem is that you have, in my mind, I will use the concept of a three-dimensional tumor that I need to excise out of this heavenly marble, right? That's sculpting. It's not a checklist or working on a car it's a creative element to what I do or a scientific riddle and I'll let I'll, I'll think about it before I go to bed and when I wake up I'll write down some thoughts that I'm having most of them aren't good <laughs> I'm not giving you any simple solutions but when I have had good thoughts they've been in that time period and so the transition to sleep and out of sleep may be a portal to the creativity 
in your dreams and uh, when they put the electrical stickers on people's foreheads when this was happening interestingly the awake brain waves electrical measurements and the asleep brain waves this the only time they tend to overlap sleepy enough to be a little loose but awake enough to remember what you're thinking and with your phone next to you or your notepad next to you that is one way uh, to harness creativity and those are some examples that creativity is within all of us. And very briefly, I know it's oversimplifying to ask little quick-fire questions like this, but if there were a few things that you could advise anybody reading your book to do to look after your brain health better for your future life, what would those be? Uh, so I'll go rapid-fire and give you some examples as well. So one, uh, change what you eat, and it's going to be delicious. The Mediterranean diet, the mind diet, which is mostly plants and fatty fish, red wine, nuts, is are the nutrients that will put you in a much lower risk for dementia. It's a glacial process. I'm not talking about how much you eat, just what you eat. That's proven. Multiple countries, decade-long studies. Change the cadence of your eating, number two. Long stretches of not eating with respect to all those people who don't have food in this world. But the concept is proven that after 16 hours, when you run out of glucose, your liver will start using fat to build ketones as your backup source. Brain is a hybrid vehicle. It likes going between glucose and ketones. So a couple of days skipping breakfast, coffee's fine, getting out to 1 o'clock and then eating. The cadence of eating can help you with mental clarity. Meditative deep breathing, we talked about that. That's free, that's yours, five minutes as if it were a meal, and we spend so much time on our phones, why not just five minutes for that? Exercise a bit. You don't have to become a marathoner. The high yield, where you get 80% of the yield with minimal effort, is brisk walking several times a week. And what it does is it's not about something coming up from your thighs to your brain. Is that It keeps the arteries of the brain open, and the flesh of the brain, anatomy of the brain, needs to be irrigated. And number two, the brain has its own growth factors, called BDNF, nerve growth factors, these sort of things that it will release onto itself and nurture itself. Not neurotransmitters like dopamine, but actual growth factors. Think of them as fertilizer for your ecosystem. And the last thing is, it's thinking flesh. It's flesh that thinks. So if you want to work it out, think. And it doesn't mean you have to go and get a PhD. Just learn new things, try new things, use... You don't have to become bilingual, but the process of trying to learn 20 words in a different language will get your brain thinking, and that's what it wants to do. If we wanted more bigger biceps or bigger, run faster, what Usain Bolt would say, well, just run more. Well, don't forget this, this heavenly white flesh inside all of our skulls is, a, is thinking flesh, and to exercise it uh, and keep thinking. Keep thinking. Thank you very much.